let's jump into Romans 1. Romans chapter 1 this morning. So grab a Bible. You can flip there. Uh, there are some Bibles around uh, underneath the seats. You can um, follow along there. We do have some that are for purchase as well that we get at a very, very good price, cheaper than any other bookstore you're going to find, guaranteed. Um, so you can get an ESV if you like, English Standard Version. Um, that's what I'll, I'm preaching from. Romans chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. We're going to pick it up in verse 18 momentarily. All right, last week we started with this big idea. This is foundational. So only the Christian worldview gives coherent meaning to everything in life. Only the Christian worldview gives coherent meaning to everything in life. In other words, if you don't start with God, who has revealed himself to us in the Bible, um, you have no logical, you have no rational, you have no morally justifiable reason to believe really anything if you don't start with God. So once once you step off of the foundation of the truth for all things, you begin to basically sink into a worldview of darkness. If you don't start with God and his word you are inevitably reduced to brain gas and incoherent meaninglessness. So if we are evolved pond scum and apes are our relatives, your brain is simply firing off opinions, and who cares what you think anyway? Why should you care what anybody thinks if that's all it is? So only when we start with the Bible can we make sense of of things like laws of logic, um, ethics, right and wrong, right, and reality itself. And so last week, we kind of def- we defined worldview this way. A worldview is a collection of presupposed truths through which we fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and discern the world and everything in the world. So everyone has a worldview. Everyone has something that they presuppose, and what they presuppose actually guides what they think about the world and how they believe about the world, what they believe about the world, and how they see the world. So worldview is inescapable. Y'all have one. You walked in here today with a worldview, a lens through which you see everything. And we also noted, and we'll, we'll kind of explore this some more today, that in all worldviews, all of them are at war with each other. And the reason is because they want their ultimate authority, their ultimate standard to win out. So that's why atheists, as inconsistent as they are, they still, up to show, they, they still show up to debates and debate Christians. They want everyone to know that their view that nothing matters, matters. One more thing from last week. The Bible alone is the standard for truth. The Bible alone is the standard for truth. Now, some of you I talked to last week, you, you know, you were, you were very quick to affirm this. Now, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire when I start talking politics. Because then suddenly everybody gets crazy. The Bible alone is the standard for truth, for everything. Jesus said in John 17, 17, that God's word is truth. You cannot verify the truthfulness of God's word from some outside source looking in on it. That would make the outside source the final authority. So instead, we have to start with God's self-revelatory truth if we're going to do anything. In other words, uh, the Christian worldview, our worldview, as those who name the name of Christ... 
presupposes, we presuppose, we assume at the start, at the foundational level, that the ultimate standard of truth is found in God's word. So which means whenever we we approach anything, whether it's politics, world religions, taxation, what is just and, and unjust, property ownership, any of these things that the Bible does in fact address, whenever we approach it, you name what it is, we approach it from God's word, not man's opinion. So that was our our first message in this series, and today I want to kind of build off of what we discussed last week. Now, truth be told, what I'm going to talk about today was, and still is, one of the most earth-shattering concepts that I've ever learned. I look back on my life and the study of God's Word. I look back in Bible college and on to seminary, and you you see how God's just shifted you and changed your character, your theology, and just... I look back on all of that, and, and there are a lot of things, a lot of significant things that have, have shaped me to where I am today. But this, this morning's topic is probably one of the largest, most powerful concepts that has changed the way I think about everything. So, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the myth of neutrality. The myth of neutrality. Here's our main idea today. Because everything is covenantal, and I'll unpack that as we go, everything is covenantal. We approach all things in life, everything, from the premise that it, whatever it is, is either with God or against God. Nothing is neutral. Okay? So this is my argument today. Because everything is covenantal, that's my assumption, and I'm going to prove that to you. Because everything is covenantal, we approach all things in life, everything. This is a foundational concept that will change the way you think about everything in your life. I guarantee it. We approach all things in life from the premise that it is either with God or against God. Nothing is neutral. Okay? Which means everything is ethical. Because man sinned against God. So there's the ethical relationships fractured. We can't, we can't be righteous by ourselves. We need Jesus' righteousness on our behalf. So all of this is, this is foundational to, to your worldview. Everything is covenantal. We approach everything. It's either with God or against God. The, the principle of no neutrality in the world is monumental. Learn this, and you'll be able to do what Paul said to do last week in 2 Corinthians 10 quite well. You'll be able to refute and destroy any argument that comes your way. It doesn't matter if it's evolution. It doesn't matter if it's this, that, and the other. Whatever the agnostic or the atheist or the the person who's just hostile to the Christian faith, whatever they say, you get this right, you'll win every, every single time. I guarantee it. You'll be well equipped to be salt and light in a war with light, with darkness and rotting meat, the war that we find ourselves in. So let's, let's read our two texts. Um, I'm going to read the one for you, but if you're in the app, you can see it there. Romans chapter 1, we'll start with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, I'll read Luke eleven twenty three for you. It says this. This is Jesus. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So notice that my choice here for the big idea, that my choice in words actually comes from the words of our Lord himself. With or against, on team Jesus, on team Satan. There is no neutrality. There is no middle ground anywhere on this planet. Jesus draws the line. Either you are with me or you are against me. There, there is no, well, you know, I've looked at all the issues. I've laid them on the table. And there's some things I agree with with Jesus. And then there are some things that I don't agree with with Jesus. Listen, if you don't agree with Jesus, you're wrong. <laughs> so just know that. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But the point I want to make from Romans 1 is simple. God has revealed himself to creation. Okay, that's the covenant I spoke of. We'll talk about that some more. He has revealed himself to his creation. And in doing so, the Bible says that everyone knows he exists. He just said it. Everyone knows that God exists. It's actually a question of what we talked about last week, epistemology. How do we know what we know? The study of knowledge. How do you know that you know that you know? Right? That's the the perennial question. How do you know something? We know because God has revealed himself. That's how we know things. So laws of logic, they exist because God is logical. Um, Morality exists because God is righteous. And only his law is the supreme standard of right and wrong. So everyone knows that God exists because God has, Paul even says, shown it to them, made it plain to them in verse 19. He has revealed himself through creation, through conscience, through his law, through scripture. Well, how could, how could, you're telling me that everyone knows that God exists? Because I know people that say they don't know that God exists. They're not sure. What about, what about the people in the, the deepest, you know, jungles of, of South America or even in Africa? You're telling me that they know that God exists? Scripture basically anticipates your objection and answers it. Paul says they are without excuse. Without excuse, anapologetos. It's a word without defense. Literally, they don't, have, they don't have a defense. They don't have a justification. They're without excuse. Before God, men cannot bring a defense attorney in to help their case. There's no, there's no excuse. There's no defense. There's no justification for one's actions. You're simply laid bare before the holy God right now in judgment and then in the future in, in the final judgment. So it basically changes how we think about the world, right? Changes quite a bit. Proving Christianity is not about giving proof and then letting someone decide if it's true or not. Right? How could Noah's Ark? That's just, I don't, that's impossible. Well, actually, if the animals, you know, they were probably smaller, they were probably babies and they could fit a whole bunch of on there and then some of the dinosaurs would have been on there but then they would have eventually died out and species and and you go into all this, that and the other. Do you, 
Ever, anybody done that? Has anybody ever said to you, oh, thanks, I love Jesus now. You just solved it. Why is that never going to work? We don't give... <laughs> proving Christianity is not about giving proof and letting someone decide if it's true or not. This approach basically presupposes that the unbeliever is in a position of neutrality, which means he gets to be the judge over God. So we're not out to prove that Christianity... We're not, we're not out to prove it, at least not empirically, right? By observation. You don't prove to the man who rejects the existence of words... You don't prove to him that words exist by handing him a dictionary. You point out the folly of his use of words to reject words. Does that make sense? Proverbs 26.5 says, Answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. The problem that people have is not a lack of knowledge. The problem is sin. They're dead in it. You can't take a dead man and throw a Bible at him and say, here, decide for yourself. He's dead. He can't see it. He needs to be brought to life to see it. So Jesus affirms this line of thinking. He makes it clear. If someone is not with Christ, he's against Christ. There is, there's no neutral ground. There, there is no one on this planet who is in a position of neutrality before the Lord Jesus Christ. There isn't any gray area, this common middle ground of neutrality. It's either we are with him or against him. That's it. So we have to let that permeate our thinking and everything. Now, the reason that we approach everything in this life the way we do, this way, is because everything, everything is covenantal. And I brought this up last week, and I, I, will, I will continue to explore this idea. It does apply to politics. We'll get there. Just hang tight. But I want to I wanna at least build this argument some more using the covenantal model we actually find in scripture. Okay. So just going to get a little heady for a second, but hang tight. Theologians for centuries have identified the covenants. They, they see that the covenants of God in scripture hold everything together. If someone were to come up to you and say, Hey, so what's the glue that basically holds the Bible together? What's that? What's, you, you know, I'm looking at these 66 books and all right, I see some themes that cross over. Jesus is in the end. Oh, at the end we win. Great. Um, uh, what's the thing that holds it all together? You know what you should say? Covenant. That's your answer. Covenant. A covenant is a treaty, which is ratified by an oath. Okay? A covenant is a treaty that is ratified by an oath. It's a binding agreement between two parties which lays out the terms and conditions of the relationship. Now, the most familiar one to you in the Bible that you know, we celebrate each week a communion which was ratified in Christ's blood, the new covenant. But outside of the Bible, probably the covenant you are most familiar with is, of course, a marriage covenant. So covenants are, are everywhere because binding agreements are everywhere. There are agreements between people. It's just the nature of life. Everything is covenantal. So they're everywhere and anywhere. It's built within the fabric of creation. God's covenant law word is built within the fabric of creation. So that said, there's actually this particular model that is found in Scripture that fits really the ancient 
Near Eastern treaties. Whenever a king would conquer, he was the suzerain, and then there were the vassals. And when a king would conquer a nation, he would come in and say, okay, here's these five things. This is how this works. Whether it was the ancient Mesopotamians, um, the Hittites, you know, any, any of the um, kings and stuff you read in the Bible, and even outside of the Bible historically, they all kind of follow this model. It's, even, even your Bible's structured this way. The first five books we call the Pentateuch. Five, right? Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books are structured in this, in this way. Um, Deuteronomy is that way. Uh, Psalms, Matthew, and even the book of Revelation. So each of these five elements I'm going to show you um, are found in Scripture. They're found in the world around you. It's amazing, I think, how God has put this together, really. Um, you can use this to analyze anything in creation, especially we'll use it to analyze politics the later we go. Here are those five things. This is the covenantal model in Scripture. I know this is a lot. Bear with me. Okay? This is the covenant model. At the very beginning, number one, is what we call the transcendence of God. Transcendence. He's, he's, he transcends creation. He's distinct and different from his creation. Um, God is this sovereign God. He created everything. He sustains everything. Okay? He created it. He sustains it. He makes your heart beat right now. Aren't you excited to worship him today? He is the supreme judicial authority. I chose the word judicial on purpose. He is judge. His law is law. He is, in fact, judge of the entire world. Everyone ethically, right, morally, right and wrong, we're talking, owe to him. He is the supreme judicial authority. So that's the transcendence. The second part of this this covenant, whenever a king would make a covenant, he would start clearly with his terms, and then he would go down the list. And number two would be the hierarchy part. That's us. That's man. That's the, the vassals who were conquered by this king. This is a basically a hierarchical system of law enforcement. God is, is basically interested in commissioning man for ethical and economic productivity, right? We don't, like, there, there's a reason you go to work. And, and for most of us, it's, it's short-sighted. I'm just trying to work to pay the bills. I racked up. <laughs> and then it's just like, that's it. Well, no, God wants you to work. We've covered that a couple weeks ago for his glory. But there's a hierarchy here. God is the supreme authority, but man is under him, under his leadership, under his guidance. We owe our allegiance to him. The third thing, We're talking about ethics, the law. Laws are the terms of the covenant. This is the agreement. God gave his law word so that we would know the difference between right and wrong. I'm perplexed by our current political situation um, on many different levels. But I will say this. To the degree that a society does not know the Ten Commandments, but instead knows the Ten Characters on The Simpsons, is to the degree that we fall into what we are in now. So, we'll, we'll come back to... This is like a grid we're going to look at everything through. Number four is, is an oath. So the king would, would declare 
And this is what God did to Israel, actually. You know, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, right? I mean, he just declared his sovereign authority. And here's man in, below him. And then there are terms and conditions, right? The law is here. And then there is an oath, an oath that is made. What is this oath? Well, this is the sanctions of the covenant. An oath basically calls forth God's judgment and, and blessings, which basically depend on your loyalty to this, to this king. If basically, if God's people obey, blessings come. If God's people disobey, curses come. So if God's people disobey, you get America today. That's what's happening. You use this grid to look at everything in the world, especially where we are at politically, you will see how this fits. There's a reason why we're in this mess. Debacle 2016, we should call it. Sanctions. God brings his judgment in history. The fifth element of a covenant was what we would call the succession. This is basically how time, what, how time flows with this new covenant relationship. How do things, um, this is like assistance of inheritance. There's a reason God says that he's faithful to 10,000 generations. So this, this is Deuteronomy. This is the Bible. This is just the grid that's there. And it's... It's fantastic because you actually have something you can look at and assess the world around you. So when God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, this was it. This, this was a model. Even the Ten Commandments follow this. When Jesus renewed covenant through his own actions, this model was present. Anytime in scripture you see covenantal relationships, these binding agreements between the God of the universe and man, whether in Christ or in Adam, wherever that's at, this is the grid. You'll see these themes. And so the questions basically boil down to this. When we analyze ourselves, when we analyze our churches, whenever we analyze our families, whenever we analyze even the state or any idea that's out there, we ask these questions. One, who's in charge? Who, who do I report to, right? Uh, three, well... What are the rules? What happens if I obey? What happens if I disobey? And then does this, does this place have, have a future? What's going to happen now that I'm in this relationship with, with God? The, the reason I'm teaching this model is because not only have I structured this series after it, I want you to know what I mean when I say certain things. Many of these five things are going to come out. Um, last week, we already started with this, right? We, we presuppose God. He's revealed himself. He's the transcendent God who's made himself known. How does, he, how does he made himself known? Scripture. That's how we know who God is. That's how we know all about God. But I want you to know this, and I do fully believe that knowing it actually changed my life. Um, if you want to learn more about it, you can read Ray Sutton's book, That, Thou, um, that You May Prosper, or Gary Norris' book, Unconditional Surrender. If you want those titles, talk to me afterwards. I'll let you know. But anyhow, I, I want you to know this because God gives us an answer in his word. What is one of the biggest questions right now for people during this election cycle? Who, who, do, I, who do I vote for, right? Do, do I want stage four or stage 3.9? Right? So, so there's a question of, so people lay their things on the table. 
all right, well, you know, they've got the Supreme Court issue. we got this issue. we got that. We're, we're, but it is a debacle. What do you do? Well, here's the grid. One of the questions within the political season is, who's in charge? Who's in charge? Is it really the black robes behind the bench? Are they going to tell us who can murder a child? Who can marry whom? Because if the Supreme Court is truly supreme, we have a problem. Because there's actually an ultimate Supreme Court in a very real sense. So who, who's in charge? Well, God. God's in charge. There's, there's no other gods before him. First commandment. He's the ultimate and supreme being. Well, so, okay, so what's my relationship to him? Whom, how, how do I live for him in this life? All men everywhere are to serve, worship, and rely on God. All institutions, individuals, families, churches, and even the state, Scripture says, are to submit themselves under his authority. Well, what a, what a, okay, so who's in charge? What, what about the, the ethical part? What's the law part? What are the, what are the rules? What are the ethics of this covenant? Well, loyalty to Jesus means obedience to Jesus. He said, if you love me, you will keep my what? My commandments. He says it several times in the gospel of John. So, so, okay, if I keep his commandments, what, what happens? Well, God's either going to protect us or scatter us. And that's depending on if I'm a friend or a foe of God. Well, what about the future? What does the future hold? People are scared. What about the Second Amendment? What about this, that, and the other? How how is this going to play out in the future? What are we going to do? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to inherit the earth. Because Jesus bought it. It's ours. Now, I I know that's a lot to take in. But bear with me. I want to try to bring this down to a practical level. Remember what we've established. Jesus is Lord. He's in charge. God in Christ has established his covenant, his binding agreement with man. Everyone's in this covenant relationship, whether you're pagan or you're in Christ, wherever you're at. Um, Everyone is bound on this planet in some fashion to him. Just because somebody doesn't believe in God doesn't mean they aren't obligated to obey him. Everything is covenantal. Everything stems back to God's binding self-revelation. And everyone is obligated to bow before him. Everyone has an obligation to bow before King Jesus. There is no neutrality. Okay, Everyone, I'm saying this 15 different ways. Everyone is in a relationship with God. But when you look at the model, what does that relationship look like? Either, either God will be supreme or man will be supreme. If the supreme law of the land becomes an immoral law, then what? We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. How do, what do we do as Christians when we talk about Christian disobedience? What, do we, what are we supposed to do? When, th- when these things change, when man tries to usurp God and, and, and move up on the covenantal ladder to take over, and then he gets to set the terms and conditions. And what happens when that happens? Well, what are the sanctions? You don't believe in homosexual marriage? You bigot? 
You've just been judged. What happens then? You get pushed out of the, out of the middle of the public square. You're left to fend for yourself. You see how this plays out? Either they are with Christ or against Christ. Everything is covenantal. Everything goes back to this relationship, this pattern. Everything is there for you to see. Now let's try to get practical. Culture, I've said this before, culture is religion externalized. Okay, What happens in culture reveals a standard. It reveals some sort of standard, some sort of ethical belief about the world, uh, which basically stems from your religious presuppositions. What, do you, what God are you serving? So think, think of it in terms of America today. Because of a misunderstanding of the very first amendment, and we'll come back to this in this series, secular humanism is now the religion of the hour. That's the religion in America. No respecter of religions, right? You can be whatever you want to be. That's an issue with the First Amendment. That's not what it's supposed to mean, but we'll come back to that. So that, what do you do? Se- secularism basically, by definition, tries to play the neutral game. We, we can't establish a religion. We can't do it. So we'll remain neutral. Well, guess what? What did we just say? There is no neutrality. Not in God's covenantal world. There is no neutrality. So what does secularism then become? Becomes its own status God. Take law in this country, for example. All codified law presupposes a morality. Nothing is neutral, remember? Nothing is neutral, including law. Law is actually religious. If something becomes law... It's because justice, in some sense, is trying to be meted out, right? So this over here is righteous behavior. This over here is unrighteous behavior. Let's make a law against this. So, when you do that, this over here, not that over there, becomes law. And saying this or that about taking sides on morality, guess what you've just done? But you can't legislate morality. How many have been told that? How many have said that? You can't legislate morality. Let me tell you something. All legislation is morality. All of it. It just depends on which set of morals from which God will be established. Will it be Christ or Moloch? We know who Planned Parenthood bows before. Any, any disestablishment of, of law and religion in a society inherently means, because there's no neutrality, the establishment of another law and another religion. So law is, is codified morality. It reveals what your morality is, right? Morality is manifest religion. You tracking? Law is codified morality. When you make a law, whatever it is, it shows where your morals are. Where do your morals come from? Your religious convictions. So this is the not whether but which principle. This is no neutrality. Not whether but which principle. You ready? It's not whether or not a religion will be established in this country, but which religion will be established. It's not whether marriage will be established, but which version and whose version of marriage will be established. It's not whether a law will be moral or not, but which morals will this law reflect. It's not whether God will be honored in this nation, but which God. 
Which means, guess what we live in right now? We live in a theocracy. Do you know that? Theos is the Greek word for God. Kratos is rule, theocracy, God's rule. We, you Christians, you just want a theocracy. What do you think you have? We live in a theocracy. Theocracy is inescapable since all law is moral at its root. The problem we have now is that we have a different God that's ruling the place. It's not whether a theocracy will be in place in America, but which God will rule. That's the question. And that's why we are ultimately up other gods, up against other gods. We want Christ to be the head of state, not the fake God of statism. We want to be ruled by King Jesus, not Caesar. If, if God isn't above Caesar, guess what? Caesar becomes God. If Jesus isn't king and lord over the president, over our congressmen and women and the Supreme Court, then guess who is the king and lord? So either rulers will fear God and rule according to his law, or rulers will become despots who will rule according to their own law. Theonomy, God's law, autonomy, self-law. Either man will be governed by God, or man will govern himself. And when man governs himself, look what has happened historically in our country. In 200 years, 200 plus, it's amazing we have to get through this through our heads. Secularism wants to play the neutral game, but it simply can't happen. And we shouldn't let them play the neutral game. Jesus is Lord of all. And if the secularists do not wish to bow before this king, this secularist isn't suddenly someone who doesn't, doesn't worship anything. He's actually someone who will worship anything and everything. Pluralism in our culture this pluralism, right? Multiple, multiple religions, multiple ideas, multiple gods, all this stuff. Pluralism is the golden calf that says that everything is equally true. But because there is no neutrality, all worldviews, they are hostile to each other. That's why there is a tension in this country right now. Because worldviews are at war. And it's getting kind of ugly. So the only way out for your world worldview that claims something different than another worldview, the only way out is either for your worldview, your system to win, or, or the only other way out is for it to commit suicide. So the battle in our culture is a battle of mediation, right? A mediator. Uh, since there's no neutrality, guess what? Everyone needs a mediator. Someone to alleviate their consciences and get them to whatever God that they wish. It's not whether someone will actually have a mediator to get to their God, but which mediator will they have? Christ or themselves? Jesus or Pharaoh? Um, God or the state? Which means that we simply cannot, we cannot set aside our presuppositions and argue from another perspective. Friends, you cannot engage in political discussion and just say, well, I'm going to leave my Christian convictions over here, and then I'm going to argue for, for this. You can't do it. You can't give up the authority of the Bible and then try to argue for the Bible. You, we can't set aside the lordship of Christ in order to argue for the lordship of Christ. We can't, we can't talk politics, religion, or anything else by giving up the source of which truth comes from. Where all logic, rationalization, and truth rests. And we cannot set our, aside our commitment to Christ in everything. 
and then try to argue for some sort of political system as if Jesus isn't Lord. We can only do politics because Jesus Christ is King. In other words, the the word of God should go with you to the voting booth. Why? Because Jesus is Lord and he owns everyone on the ballot. And everyone on the ballot owes their allegiance to him. Psalm chapter 2. Let's get even more practical on this principle of no neutrality and then we'll wrap up. Let's talk about marriage and sexual ethics. The sexual jihadists are tempting to make you think that all they want is to be tolerated. The move in our culture was never about just tolerance. It can never be about tolerance. You can't be totally tolerant of anything and everything. The toleration message is a smokescreen for introducing a new religion. The sexual anarchists in our culture won't be content until any and all resemblance of biblical sexual ethics is completely effaced from our society. They got to the Supreme Court and now they want our children. There's no neutrality. The sexual anarchists won't be happy until your child comes home and claims something contrary to his birth certificate. Let's talk about abortion. Molech is hungry and is never satisfied. The blood guiltiness of our nation deserves nothing short than a repeat of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet the narrative continues to change. Because there is no neutrality, right? The hypocrisy from those who are opposed to Christ is, is incredibly revealing. That's why you can see our president affirm the mother's choice to rip their baby to shreds while at the same time, in the same breath, shed tears for that child who was shot in a school. That's why you have a vice presidential candidate who says he's personally opposed to abortion, but politically, he's in favor. There is no neutrality. Planned Parenthood can rail all they want about gun control when they should be concerned with forceps control. But alas... They are enemies of Christ. There is no neutrality. And listen, the reality is we're all theologians. We all live to serve a God. Which God is it? If it isn't Jesus, it isn't nothing. It's self, it's state, it's even Caesar. But Jesus made it plain. You can't serve two masters. There cannot be two equally authoritative worldviews. You'll either love one and hate the other or serve the one and disown and despise the other. And that's where I want to push on you for a minute. Some of this may be new. You're sitting here listening, maybe pondering it, taking, taking it all in. Some of you are upset that I said sexual jihadists. Some of you are taking notes, trying to keep up. But let me say this. All of you, including me, need to repent. We need to repent of our duplicitous hearts. We need to repent of our double-mindedness. We need to repent of thinking that there are areas of life where Christ is not Lord over. We need to repent of believing the lie that people and institutions can be neutral on issues in politics. There's simply, there's no justified reason that 3,000 babies must die every day in order to appease the God of state. Church, we have to repent of our apathy. When Roe V. Wade was passed. Listen to me. When Roe was passed, six of the nine Supreme Court justices were ostensibly conservative Republican-appointed justices. Fact. Oh, do we need to repent. 
the wrath of God abides on this nation for our insistence on neutrality. And we've become so stinking numb that we find ourselves in quite a predicament this election season. But make no mistake, there is no neutrality. There isn't. Jesus is Lord. Abraham Kuyper said, the Dutch statesman, there's not a square inch in this world that Jesus doesn't say, mine. We must get to our knees and pray, church. Probably a little overdue for that. We must confess our specific sins, including the sin of neutral thinking. We must believe Christ can and he will forgive us. And then we must get up and we must be about the kingdom work. So next week, we will turn our attention to the kingdom of God. Friends, be in prayer. Big time. Let's pray. Father, why, why you haven't dropped fire from the sky yet, I don't know. We are in a mess, Lord, and a mess that we have contributed to, to some extent. Your church, generally speaking, we've chosen to chase after other idols. Like Aaron, we've basically produced this golden calf, and we try to put your name on it. We are fickle, and most days we are ambivalent. Father, I pray that you would light a fire under your church in this nation so that we would genuinely be about the work of the kingdom. Many of us, we we don't know where to begin, but we can begin by clinging closely to your son, Jesus. Father, we have opened up your word. We have pieced it together in such a way as to better understand you and the world you have made. And we admit, Lord, that like many in Israel, Israel's day, we, we are fearful. We're a touch bit scared, but we also know that cowardice is not a virtue. If it pleases you, Lord, grant to us through the power of your Holy Spirit a humble confidence, a courageous boldness to stand for your word when no one else will. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.